So if you didn't get a handout, there are some handouts back on the table there. You can grab one of those. Uh, last week, we spent some time going through Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And essentially, what we did during that time is we looked at who we were in verses 1 through 3, uh, who we are, as we see what God has done for us in Christ, and for what reason God has saved us and made us his own, which we saw in that text as well. Now, over the next couple weeks, I want to pull back the lens just a little bit and look at the Bible as a whole and thinking through specifically what is the gospel plan as we see it from Genesis to Revelation. This won't be an in-depth study but it'll be hopefully enough for us to get a good picture of that. And so as as we begin to think about this, we've talked about in the past, if you remember, I don't know, maybe it was session two or so, maybe even session one, where we talked about how every organization has a goal. They exist for a purpose. And we looked at mission statements of different organizations, um, So we recognize from that at one point in time, someone had an idea and the motivation to turn that idea into a reality. We talked about during that time how it's the leader's responsibility to be the visionary that communicates this goal to the people in their organization. Um, And when we think about that on some different levels, we recognize what the goal is. Like for a sports team, what's the end goal? Winning, right? For a business, it's profit. You want to make make money. Uh, For an army, the goal is defense of the homeland and when necessary to, to go to war in order to defend that. As we think about that reality, we see also that the church has a bottom line clarity on what its goal is. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader, and he has this compelling vision that he has communicated to the people in the church. Everything that the church does serves to promote and execute this plan that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And that's why it's very important to keep the big picture in view when we consider the topic of evangelism. What is all of this about? So when Jesus commissioned his followers to make and train disciples... He was mapping out the course for them that his disciples would follow. And as we've seen, it's the priority of Jesus for his people that they do what? That they make disciples. Right? The church is the means by which God will reach people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But it's extremely important for us to regularly revisit that great commission in light of God's big picture plan. And that's what we're going to do in our session together this morning. So there on your notes, you've got three fill-in-the-blanks. And the first one there, what is the gospel plan? We're going to look first at gospel beginnings. Gospel beginnings. Where do we see this plan begin to emerge? Well, we look to the book of Genesis, right? The book of beginnings uh, to see that. In the first two chapters, we read that everything was good or very good. God had wonderfully created all things and proclaimed them to be good. And then in chapter 3, we see a very drastic change in tone. 
we see three members of this creation, Satan, Adam, and Eve, unite in rebellion against God. And the rebellion has both vertical and horizontal consequences. The vertical consequences are a broken relationship with God that is characterized by separation. The horizontal consequences are damaged or broken relationships with others, also characterized by separation. This is why when we look at the issues that man has with man, we never try to jump in and solve that issue on a horizontal level, right? Man is at war with man specifically because man is at war with God. It's a vertical issue first and then a horizontal issue. The horizontal issue is simply the fruit, right? So when we take something like we've had in our city over the last month happen, we don't look at this and say, we need to try to bring peace between these peoples. We recognize where the peace needs to happen first and foremost, if peace is genuinely going to happen between people. We're going to see this as we get a little further in Ephesians, as Pastor Jack goes in Ephesians 2, that this unity between the peoples happens because unity has happened between God and man first and foremost, right? And so that's what we see when we look at Genesis 3. We see this, not only this vertical relationship that was severed, but horizontal relationships that were broken as well. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read a fairly extensive portion of this. Genesis chapter 3. I don't have the um, scriptures noted for you on your note sheet. I'm going to make you take some more notes. I think I've been making it too easy for you guys. Genesis chapter 3. And let's read this account here in verses 1 through 19. So let's uh, break it up here. Who would take verses 1 through 7 for us? Okay, Yvette. And then Jay, I saw your hand as well. Can you take 8 through 15? And then if I can have somebody take for us, thank you, 16 through 19. Okay, let's go ahead and read this together. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the, to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit 
of the tree I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed to you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree, of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Okay. And then I'm just going to read one more verse there. Verse 24, that closes the chapter. Speaking of God, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see in this account, which is very familiar to, to most of us, Adam and Eve listening to the serpent and rebelling against God, right? So we see here they, they question God's authority. They question his wisdom, his goodness, his worthiness, and all these things. And as a result, they demote God by dismissively breaking his law and seeking to put themselves on his throne. In, in essence, they believe the lie that they have been fed. And this rebellious elevation of self we see all throughout the scriptures, and this is what we say is sin. This is the description of sin. The vertical consequence of this action is that every single human being experiences separation or alienation from God. And Adam and Eve feel this immediately as they become aware that they're naked, they're ashamed, and they hide from God. So they know instantaneously. And then the horizontal consequences of that sin begin to become apparent as God lays out the cursed consequences of their rebellion. And the first thing we see there is this disharmony between Adam and Eve. These horizontal consequences of sin, as we recognize from our own experience and from the rest of scriptures, aren't simply limited to marriages, right? We learn that we all feel the effects of sin, which brings hurt and pain of broken relationships. And then on top of that, we learn that all of creation feels this effect of sin, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, the effects of sin are not simply personal. They're cosmic. They've affected every part of creation. But here's what you have in the middle of this rebellion against God is this curious promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? So in the middle of this pronouncement of curse, you have this promise laid out for us 
in Genesis 3.15. There's this promise here of victory, that this, this, this offspring of Eve right, is going to bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent in turn is going to have some effect upon this, this seed. It's going to bruise your heel. Okay? So there will be some pain that comes along with it. But we see this promise of restoration and ultimately salvation. So Eve would have a child who would destroy the works of the devil. This great son would reverse the curse by conquering the three great enemies of humanity, sin, Satan, and death. And the question that arises from this as we look at, look at this is, okay, how is this going to happen? How is this offspring going to bruise the head of the serpent? Who is it going to be? And when will it take place? Okay. So that's what we, we see within this promise. Well, what's interesting, we move right into chapter 4 in Genesis. And there's some excitement. Perhaps you've never seen it that way, but there's some excitement that should be there. Why? Because we've just been promised there's going to be an offspring that's going to come. That's going to undo the works of the serpent. And so the woman's having offspring. She's having children. Perhaps the promised one is here. She gives birth to Cain and Abel. As it turns out, we know the story here, neither of them proved to be this promised, skull-crushing, devil-destroying seed. In fact, in these two, you see the enmity that is between the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And then as we move into chapter 5, you see this hope that this promised one would come and undo the curse. Look what we see here in Genesis 5. Somebody want to read that for us? When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the pain. Okay, now when you go back to Genesis 3, you recognize that this was the curse that God, God brought upon the world, right? And so in Noah, which, whose name means rest, okay, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands, which goes right back to the curse that God promised. You know, the sweat of your brow, you're going to labor. This is the one who's going to bring us relief. Well, no, Noah was simply a type of the one who was to come. But this anticipation is there. Do you see that? This anticipation is this one's going to come, right? Now, we look back and we say, well, it doesn't come until Jesus. But they had expectations. <laughs> they were living right in. It's like, okay, this is bad. What has happened? We feel the weight of the curse. Who's this one that is to come, Right? And so we don't see it yet. If we fast forward a bit to chapter 11, we read that God judges the people of Babel because they refused to obey him. They refused to fill the earth and rather desired to congregate in one place in order, as chapter 11 verse 4 says, to make a name for themselves, right? Rather than spreading God's fame throughout the earth. God's judgment upon them is that he scatters and confuses them and disperses them across the face of the earth. But again, this isn't the end of the story. In chapter 12, we turn to a descendant of Shem named Abram. And here's the promise that is given 
to Abram. If somebody would like to read that here in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Thanks, Robert. God promises that through Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When we connect Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, we see these early choruses, so to speak, of the gospel already beginning to be sung. God will bring blessing. He will bring favor and restoration to people from all nations by means of of one of the descendants of Abram, who is a descendant of Eve, the promised skull-crushing, devil-destroying seed of the woman. Okay? And so within the first 12 chapters of Genesis, you have all of these things taking place. The, the story is created of what God is doing to redeem sinful man. Okay? So those are our gospel beginnings. And then... We're going to just fast forward all the way to the end, okay, to Revelation, gospel endings. In the fifth chapter of Revelation, you have this startling scene that is unfolded here. John sees an angel... He sees God the Father seated on the throne and Jesus the Son, and he sees a great multitude of people and angels hailing the glory of Christ. And what John sees there is that no one is worthy to take the scroll and open it, that is, to execute the contents of the scroll. And so look at how this unfolds here, okay? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And here's the verdict. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You know, that's really a synopsis of what we see in the Old Testament. You get these pictures of hope that maybe this is the one to bring about the plans of God to redeem His people. And you never see that take place. And so what's John's response to that? It's very telling, isn't it? He weeps loudly as he ponders this reality. Who is going to execute the plan that God has ordained? This scroll contains, as it were, the title deed and the plan for the earth. And the one who is eligible to open the seal and execute its contents is the one who is able to bring about the final establishment of God's kingdom. This means the fulfillment of God's promises, and in particular the removal of death, suffering, sin, Satan, and everything else opposed to God. This, this one would undo all these things. 
But before the scroll can be opened, however, there is some drama. Again, this strong angel conducts, as it were, an exhaustive search for the one who is worthy to open the scroll, and he finds no one. And John bursts into tears in, dis- in disappointment with this. And John is distraught specifically at the prospect of God's redemptive plan being frustrated. It's the prospect of God not being glorified, people not being saved, and the world not restored. And so he howls in sorrow over the prospect of an unfulfilled gospel. You know, it's interesting that people say that you can tell a lot about others by finding out what makes them laugh and cry. And as we look at this passage, we think, man, what what makes us cry? Does the prospect of God's honor and glory being eternally trampled do it? Does the prospect of people living and even worse, dying without Christ do it? We see this here, that this gospel must grip, if we're going to be faithful witnesses for Christ, it must grip our hearts first. It must break us that God's glory is not being honored in the lives of those that we're speaking with and that their end will be far worse than any suffering or pain that they're going through right now if they die in that state. But as the story goes on here, as it unfolds in Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That harkens back to Genesis 49. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We, we read here that there is one and only one who is eligible to take, open, and execute the contents of the scroll. And this one is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This one is our Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that however unfashionable or even offensive it may be to say in public today, we proclaim this. There is only one person who can bring about God's plan of salvation. That one, that exclusive one, is our Lord Jesus Christ. He can and will do it. So in this vision, Jesus goes and he takes the scroll And we know from reading the rest of the book of Revelation that he will open it and do everything that the scroll or the plan contains. And so what we see in this is Jesus, the seed of the woman who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, will bring salvation from sin, Satan, and death. He's going to judge his enemies. He's going to save his people. He's going to restore the creation. He's going to bring about the resurrection from the dead. That's the hope that we find in Revelation. That's the great news. And so John then sees this. So he starts off with sorrow. Who's going to do it? Jesus is going to do it. And then what's the response to that going on in Revelation 5? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Now, this is echoing back again to Genesis 3, right? That the offspring of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. There's going to be pain involved in that, right? But ultimately, the victory is of the offspring of the woman. And that's what we see here. You were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then this isn't the end of the worship service. It continues. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And just get that picture in your mind, right? Can you imagine what that's going to be? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's what we have there. This concluding story is the victory of the offspring of the woman. Now, when you combine these verses, you see that the praise is to Jesus based upon his worth, his infinite beauty and glory, and also his work that is, all that Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection as a ransom for his people. So, when we lay the book of beginnings, Genesis, alongside the book of endings, Revelation, we see a wonderful promise being fulfilled. The seed of the woman has come through the line of Abraham to bring the blessing of salvation to the nations. Jesus has brought salvation to all peoples. So we see the gospel plan is fulfilled. It will happen, definitely. The only question that remains for us now is how. How is this going to happen? So we see the beginning. We see the ending. What's in the middle? How does this take place? And that's where we come into the equation by God's grace, both as recipients of the gospel and workers of it. This last part is gospel workers. Prior to Jesus' ascension into heaven, he gathered his disciples together for a famous speech. And in this teaching, commonly known as the Great Commission, Jesus reminded his disciples who he is and what he wants them to do. And in short, what Jesus says is, I am the king, the savior of the world, and you are my messengers. A passage that we've looked at numerous times, but let's take a look at it once more, if I can have somebody read that for us. Okay, thanks, Jessica. Remember, what we're talking about here 
is a plan that has been promised and will certainly be fulfilled. In this passage, Jesus gives a very clear understanding of how he means to see the promise of that plan reach its fulfillment. And the command here is make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple, as we have talked about, is a follower of Jesus. And how does someone become a follower or a disciple of Jesus? As we've discussed in previous classes, they must hear the message of Christ, the gospel, and then believe it. How do we make disciples? Well, current disciples talk to people about the gospel. They explain who Jesus is, what he has done, and how we're to respond to him in faith and repentance. It really is a weighty thing when we think about this plan that God has ordained and the reality of its certain fulfillment. Does God's great plan for the universe rest on the shoulders of these 11 disciples in Matthew 28? Jesus says, I'm giving this to you. Here's your mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Does it rest on their shoulders? Well, there's two ways to answer that, yes and no. Yes, in the sense from a human perspective, it's their commission. They couldn't just sit down right there and be like, God's going to accomplish this because God told them what they needed to do. It was their commission. It was their job, so to speak, and the job of all who would come to follow Jesus to engage in this work of evangelism and disciple-making. At the same time, we recognize, right, that when someone is born again or converted, it does not happen apart from the sovereign work of God. God has a plan, and he powerfully works to make it happen. But we must remember, part of his plan is to use disciples to make disciples. So we recognize, right, that God is sovereign, that he's ordained all these things, but he's given responsibility to his people in order for these things to come to pass, right? So that's where we hold this tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. One of the things that unfortunately has happened, uh, uh, charges against those within the Reformed community is that we're not evangelists, right? We're those who just sit and rest in the sovereignty of God. Uh, God's going to work out all things, right? And it makes us lazy in evangelism. And I would counter that to say, absolutely not. We're those who are sure that God's plan is going to be fulfilled, and therefore he's using us to bring that to pass, right? And so I want to think about that for a second of what does God's sovereignty mean for evangelism? What does God's sovereignty mean for evangelism? Well, it certainly does not negate our responsibility to be active, intentional, and persistent in sharing the gospel. Instead, it should cause us to rest in God's power to save. I don't know about you, but when I really became, when I really understood the sovereignty of God, it freed me up in my evangelism to faithfully go and proclaim the gospel, recognizing this person's conversion does not rest upon my shoulders. God has to do this work, but he's given me the joyful responsibility of bringing this word. And he takes that word, which I'm simply speaking from his word, And he makes that person new. So that freed me up in my 
responsibility for evangelism. Praise God. Let's go tell people about the Lord and let's do so passionately. So God's sovereignty teaches us to fully trust in his power to save sinners. God is the Savior. That's what we have to remember. God's the Savior, not us. And therefore, all pride is eliminated. We recognize at the end of the day, listen, it wasn't the eloquence of my speech or the way that I brought in that illustration or whatever the case may have been. It's the work of God. I'm speaking to a dead person. I can't do anything, but God can work through these lips, and that's amazing, through his word being spoken and bring sinners to life. So we don't produce the results, right? And that frees us, frees us up there. So helps us to recognize and fully trust in his power to save sinners. The second thing I think is that God's sovereignty reminds us that we should have no fear in evangelism. The fact that God has set apart people to believe removes all that need to fear, right? Here's where I rest at the end of the day. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And so I recognize my responsibility is to be the voice of the shepherd by speaking his word to other people. And if they're his, they will come. They will come. Maybe not in that moment, and maybe I'll never see it, but I trust the sufficiency of the word of God, and if that, they're his sheep, Jesus will bring them to himself. But he uses his people. So it removes fear in that, in that regard. His sovereignty also should encourage faithful evangelism and, as I mentioned, not serve as, as an excuse to neglect it. Again, some object to the teaching about God's sovereignty in evangelism because they think it leads people to not share the gospel. And, you know, what we can say is this. If your theology leads you to sin or be disobedient and not sharing the gospel, it's bad theology. <laughs> right? If your theology leads you to disobey a command of God, you've got the wrong theology. You need to go back and see what the scriptures, what the scriptures teach. So when we have that understanding of, man, this is a weighty commission given to men. It is. But God is sovereign over all these things. And we should be able to rest in that. And that's where these brothers were able to rest, knowing that God is sovereign, that God will bring about his purposes. And so, as we think about our role in this, then, we're not, we don't just sit back, we're not complacent in that. We have a responsibility in evangelism. We should be active, intentional, and persistent in doing so. And so, what does that look like? And I just want to mention three things. You can jot these down if you'd like. We've talked about one of them uh, probably all of them, actually, but I just want to give you a few snippets here that I think will be encouraging for your heart. The first one is pray. Pray. That's where evangelism begins, in prayer. And praying specifically each day that we arise, God, I am yours. I'm here on this earth to bring your gospel to those who don't know you. I don't know if you're going to bring somebody across my path today that doesn't know you. You probably will. But I pray that you would give me an opportunity to bring the gospel mm -hmm. to those who don't know you. Being intentional in our prayers, right? Asking God, give me an opportunity to bring the gospel to someone today. Colossians 4, I think, gives us a few things that we can see about 
the necessity of our praying for evangelistic opportunities. If somebody can read that for us, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. Okay, good. Let me just mention three things that I think kind of come out to us from here from continue steadfastly in prayer. Be devoted in prayer as in another, I think other translations kind of put it, put it that way. Same thing is being said there. That, that means to be devoted or to be continue, continue steadfastly in prayer it means to be busy with. That's what it literally means. Be busy with prayer. Oh man, how we need to hear that, Amen. Be busy with prayer. Attach yourself to it is what it means to be devoted to it. Attach yourself to it. And when we think about evangelism, we recognize we ought to pray before we share, pray while we're sharing, pray after we share. Right? Just doing that in the quietness of our own heart. That's why it's great when you can go out with another person to share. They can be praying while you're proclaiming or vice versa. That God would take it and he would open it because we recognize this is the means by which God works for his people. And then notice what he says there also. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Notice being watchful in it. Being watchful in it. Keeping alert in it. As you begin to pray, we must be watching. We must be living with that expectation that God wants us to bring the gospel to other people. We're looking for opportunities. That's what the intentionality is, right? You're on the lookout for somebody to bring the gospel to. You're not just waiting for it to happen. You're on the lookout that what? That God loves the lost and he's seeking to bring them to to himself. So you're praying that God would open doors for you to speak. As we do this, we'll begin to see that God has work around us in ways that we may not have noticed before. You go out with that perspective and you start thinking, man, Lord, give me somebody, give me somebody today to share the gospel. Help me to see them for who they are, an image bearer of God separated from you in desperate need to be reconciled to you. Changes the way that you walk around your day and then celebrate the opportunities that God gives you and the ways that he's worked in situations, this keeps our focus on his faithfulness and, his, and on his power rather than ourselves. The second thing that I think we can draw out from here regarding prayer is that we should pray for open doors. See Paul praying for that? Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. We should plead with God to give us opportunities. Open doors for me, Lord, to share the gospel. Open doors in my home, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my friends. You're sovereign over all, and you love the lost. Open a door for me to tell people who you are and what you have done for sinners. Right? So we ask God to open those doors. Because listen, we recognize this, and we've talked about this in Ephesians 6. We have an enemy who wants those doors to stay shut. And he wants you just to go about your life awaiting heaven and don't say anything to anybody else around you. 
that's great that you're saved. Keep that to yourself. Wait for heaven. It'll be uncomfortable if you say these things to other people. You might bring suffering into your life if you preach the gospel. All these little things that come into your, into your mind. So we're intentionally praying that God would, would work. And then thirdly, we're praying for discernment as we share the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 4, 4 there, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. When we pray, we should ask God, give us discernment in our sharing. Pray that God would help you to recall scriptures that would be helpful. This is why scripture memorization, especially in the area of evangelism, becomes so powerful. Because you've got these verses that you've stored up in your mind that are at the disposal of the Holy Spirit as you're speaking with this person. Because we recognize not every situation is the same as we're speaking to people about Christ. And so we're asking God, help me, Lord. Give me grace. Pray that he will help you to know. And perhaps you've been in this situation before. That'll help you know if you're trying to force something or if indeed he's opening a door for the word. How many of you have kind of barreled ahead in your evangelism knowing that this is not going to be profitable just to get the gospel to that person? I've had that happen before. And you look back on it, you're like, that wasn't a door for the word. I was really trying to make that a door for the word. <laughs> and it did nothing more than create an argument with that person. So we got to pray for discernment that God would help us in that. So praying is the first thing we recognize as our responsibility. Secondly, pursuing the lost with the gospel. So we're to pray, we're to pursue the lost with the gospel. Luke 19.10, Jesus, the master evangelist, the son of man, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' purpose in coming was to glorify the Father by seeking out sinners and saving them. And as his disciples, we follow him in the same purpose. We see the same idea reiterated in John's gospel in John 17.10. Notice this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We have been sent by the Lord. We, at the beginning of this class, we went through a good portion of the book of Acts, and we recognized that the, the whole book of Acts is what we see, that the disciples going out and bringing the gospel to others, it's, it's, the book of Acts is really just this recounting of how they intentionally went out with the gospel looking to proclaim the message of Christ to the world. And these examples serve us by showing that our responsibility is to pursue the lost with the message of Christ. Such a good example that we saw was Paul at Areopagus at Mars Hill, right? He's waiting there for his friends to come and he's stirred in his spirit and it causes him to go and proclaim there in Acts 17. So God has commanded us to follow Jesus by pursuing the lost with courage and compassion. And then thirdly, we must pray, we must pursue them, and then we must proclaim. We must proclaim. We need to open our mouths and tell people what God has done for them in Christ. And this is certainly the model of the disciples, again, in Acts, as they proclaim the message of the gospel everywhere they went. You had in Acts 2 there, Peter in Jerusalem 
He says, wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Therefore, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So Peter, coming right out of the gate, proclaims what God did and what they must do. We see the same approach found in nearly every chapter of the book of Acts. Disciples are called to proclaim the gospel. You see another example of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21, the text, Lord willing, that I'm going to preach on next week. We're told that as God's ambassadors, we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. What was that again? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. What we see in that passage, not to give away too much here, but God has given his son as a substitute for sinners, and now he implores people to be reconciled to him. You see, Paul says, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. That fervency that gripped his heart. The other place that we've looked at in the past is Romans 10, 13 through 15, where Paul, the same one, who told us about the foreknowledge and the predestination and calling of God, clearly teaches the need for us to proclaim the gospel when he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they going to call on him of whom they have never heard? Listen, this is, and if you've been out witnessing, you know this, many people have heard about a Jesus, but not the Jesus of the scriptures. As you get involved in people and you start talking about Jesus, their categories start being changed. Like, well, okay, I've never heard about that before or that aspect of it. Okay, we have to bring them the Jesus of the Word. So don't assume that just because somebody's heard about Jesus that they really understand what that means. How are they going to hear without someone proclaiming to them, to preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So those are a a few things that I think help clear up for us our responsibility in evangelism and recognizing what God's responsibility is in evangelism as workers of the gospel. And listen, as we look at this, as we just think about Genesis to Revelation, is there anything more exciting than to be, number one, a child of God, and number two, a proclaimer of this gospel. I mean, this you could be having the worst day on the planet, and God grants you an opportunity to bring the gospel to somebody, and everything changes, right? It's just like, this is the greatest day ever. It was just five minutes ago, it was like the worst day ever. Okay. Uh, years ago, when I was in the Youth of the Mission, I picked up a hitchhiker, and started to share the gospel, and the guy looked at me and he says, I can't believe this, and I said, what? He says, you're the fifth person who's picked me up and started sharing the gospel. <laughs> amen. Maybe it's time you listen. <laughs> That's right, amen. So I, I remember that story well, and I think he did ultimately get saved. Yeah, amen. It wasn't through my hand uh, right. at that time, so, yeah. uh, but I do remember him coming and finding his way to our base. Yeah. Fifth one, when you think about it, five people mm. picked him up, shared the gospel. Amen. He was on the road. Amen. Praise the Lord, George. I was just speaking with someone this past weekend. Uh, he said, 
to talk about evangelism, he said, I need more courage. And I, I, it reminded me of someone saying something that I think was, the Bible supports it. He said, we don't need more courage, we need more love. Love yeah. will give us the courage, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah, as we contemplate, again, this is why I just keep going back to the gospel from my own heart, as we contemplate the love that God has shown us in Christ, mm. it fills your heart with that love to bring that to other, to other people. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. Okay, um, we'll go ahead and finish with that. Next week, what we're going to do is kind of get a little more practical on this. I've been giving you some kind of broader categories. Next week, I want to give you some very practical uh, gospel steps, so to speak, or more, more of um, displays of the gospel that you can have in your mind, scriptures and things of that nature, so that when you're engaging with people in conversation, you have some things that you can share with them if you feel ill-equipped in order, in order to do that. I'm just going to try to treasure up a lot of the Word of God in our own hearts that will have it at our disposal and ready to, uh, ready to use when God uh, grants us those opportunities to bring his word to others. Amen? Amen? Okay, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again. As, as we think about the gospel, we, we want to just pause and say thank you again for your mercy toward us, Lord. That while we were sinners... Christ died for us. That we were those who were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive together with Christ. We praise you and we thank you for that. We pray, Father, with all the different things that are going on in our lives, Father, and the many responsibilities that we have, that we would never forget the most joyful responsibility, and that is to bring the gospel to others, that they might become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that we can train them to observe all that you have commanded, Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that, Lord, as we go throughout our day, when we're interacting with those around us. Break our hearts for the lost. Break our hearts for your glory, being trampled by image bearers, just as we once did, Lord. Help us to see them, Lord God. Help us to think a hundred years from now, what is going to matter? Did they know you or not? That's the only thing that's going to matter on the day of judgment. And so please help us, Lord, to keep that before us always. Make us fervent in prayer and in proclamation that your name would be honored. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.